I see that people have developed more recognition that they need to keep upgrading their skills. Mm-hmm. I came from the world of classroom training many years ago where a good facilitator was a good facilitator. And you might learn another little trick or two along the way, but there wasn't a quantum change in how you did your work. But that is not the same when we start talking about digital technologies. When I started mm-hmm. with e-learning, I had Dreamweaver and MS Paint. <laughs> MS Paint. <laughs> and now people in this business are being called upon to create video, to create dashboards, to create apps to, um, you know, to understand artificial intelligence, to understand virtual and augmented reality. And, and, you know, I think people have learned that they can't just sit on their laurels and do what they did 10 years ago, because we, we're past that. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. Now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Author of numerous books full of practical advice, columnist for Learning Solutions magazine and e-learning coordinator for the US state of North Carolina until 2017, Dr. Jane Bozarth is now Director of Research for the Learning Guild. Her career in learning spans more than 30 years, and she is a highly respected and influential figure in learning. Though she might reject the label of thought leader, there are few in the industry, surely, who have as much right to it as she does. It's truly an honour to have Dr. Bozarth on the show. So what do we talk about? Let's find out from my head of themes, Jake Curtis, who is calling in from a field station in the west of England, where she's been doing some important bodyboarding. Jay, what are the waves like today? Disappointingly flat, look, the main theme here, John, is how the development of digital learning is changing skill sets for learning professionals, especially when it comes to learning design. The upshot is that we're likely to see more specialisation in learning departments. You also covered the Guildmaster's predictions for the future, and Jane's research into the educational backgrounds of Guild members, which had some surprising results. Thanks, Jay. Back to the ocean for you. Jane Bozarth painted a picture of a practice area in transition, with new technologies bringing the need for new skills, putting pressure on a lot of existing assumptions. But at the same time, she's realistic about the pace of change. Do learning departments really need all the skills and qualifications that recruiters are asking for? So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bozarth. Thank you. Uh, I hope they might ever call you Jane. Okay. I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation because you're an enormously well-respected figure in learning and have contributed a great deal to the profession through your research, writing and speaking appearances. Uh, so hardly know where to start, really. You've, you've done so much. First of all, can you tell us about your role at the Learning Guild as Director of Research and what that entails? Uh- the director of research position, my, my role is to produce a research report once a month, usually uh, of my own volition. I, we, we toss around ideas for topics. We toss around ideas for things we'd like to do. Uh, I generally have a, a good deal of influence over what we end up choosing and how we proceed with them. I'm really fortunate for that. So some months we may do a member survey as with something like authoring tools or, or salary and employment. Some months I may take on uh, a literature review of a popular kind of hot topic uh, or, or controversial topic like generations 
in the workplace or uh, learning style. I did 10,000 words on learning styles and what to do instead. <laughs> huh. um, so I take on a myth. Sometimes we just look at a popular topic or, or a, an important topic last year because of so many issues with Black Lives Matter and, and similar political unrest-ish uh, issues. Uh, we did a, a report on diversity training and, and the problems with that, why it doesn't work. Again, what you can do instead. That was one of our most popular pieces ever. I, I Some people said, oh, nobody cares about diversity, but they were wrong. People cared a lot about yeah. diversity. So I do, I get to do a variety of things. Some of it has maths, some of it doesn't. Some of it uh, this month, for instance, our new report, uh, which I think you wanted to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, was just a conversation with some of our guild masters about their areas of expertise and how those areas have evolved uh, over the time they've been working with them and what they're looking forward to in the coming years. So I have a lot of variety in that job, but basically I publish something once a month. Once in a while, I do something extra. I typically do a holiday gift guide for people in our business, um, yeah. which was interesting because last year everyone was inordinately interested in hydration. Everybody was home. Right. Everybody was working from home. And that's your big break. Right. Is I get to go fix myself a beverage. <laughs> a beverage. So people were really into hydration, which was kind of funny. Um, so I, I do a lot of interesting stuff. The uh, reports are available at learningguild.com. They are free with a registration. You get a, it's a free membership and you can download the reports for free there. Lovely. So let's get into your most recent report. OK. Um, into the future of learning, which okay. is compiled from interviews with your guild masters which is fascinating because it covers such a lot of different angles. You've got Megan Torrance there on data, for instance, Connie Malamed on visual design, Bob Mosher, who we had in the last season on the Learning, yeah. learning Hacks, I guess, on workflow learning, of course. But when you take all those perspectives into account and put them all together, did anything emerge from you as a common view? Is there anything like a consensus <laughs> on where we're headed? A little bit. I'd like to say just a tiny bit about the Guild Masters uh, for about, I think we're on about year nine now. The, the Guild has uh, named or awarded the Guild Master uh, title uh, at each of our live conferences to people who have contributed a great deal to the field, uh, particularly to the Learning Guild. And very often these are people who have been writing publishing, speaking on um, a particular topic or have a particular area of interest for a long time. And we were talking about people with a good deal of experience. Mm. At, at present, we have 26 guild masters so far. And we realized we don't, we don't do much else. We give them an award and take a picture. <laughs> and then, okay, you're a guild, you're a guild master. Uh, if we are together, you know, if we're at a live event, they tend to round up whoever happens to be in the building and say, come be on a panel. But we're trying to find other ways of you know, in, involving the guild masters of recognizing their status in the field and in the organization. So this time I, I literally looked through the 26 um, and took a look at who had a particular expertise that leapt out at me that seemed kind of relevant right now. Data, for instance, has become very popular. Uh, virtual instruction certainly last year became a huge topic. So I, taught, I, I, I had to pick, I couldn't talk to 26 people. So I just made some choices. So I, I talked with, uh, as, you, as you said, Connie about visual design, Megan Torrance about data, Bob and Khan about workflow learning, Karen Heider about virtual classroom, uh, Nick Floro about ed tech in general. Did I get everybody? Am I forgetting somebody? I feel like I forgot somebody, but I, I apologize if I forgot anybody. But I, I would say the conversation I asked for was, can you talk to me about 
the history of what you're working in. You know, why are you interested in this? Where were we when you started? Where are we now? And, and I asked for a realistic view of the future. I was asking for a realistic within five years. I didn't want to talk about flying cars, you know, <laughs> although I want one. But, you know, I, I think sometimes with those conversations, maybe we get so far forward that people roll their eyes and they're like, okay, great, I'll see you in 25 years. So we wanted to talk about sort of the near time. I would say some of the things that emerged were the need for patience. All of these people have been doing these things for a long time. They have, hmm. you know, they have many of them a couple of decades sometimes. I see newer folks find a shiny object and they're very excited and we're, it's going to change the world tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. And that isn't really how it happens. It takes, you know, if you know about the diffusion of innovations, it can take a long time for an innovation to really take hold. It may take hold among your friends. We may all love VR headsets, but to get that, to get general uptake in the population to workplace training, especially is not going to happen tomorrow. I, I was fun. It was funny when I was talking with Megan, I realized XAPI is about a decade old now. We still tend to think of it as being some new new thing. And, and I mean, look where we are with it so far. Uh, yeah. Nick, Floro, Nick Floro talks a lot about that. He said it wasn't really that long ago that we couldn't remove backgrounds from a picture, <laughs> from a picture. or we were having to store data on CDs or capture on discs and mail them to other people because we didn't have another mm. way to get the data out there. So I think, I think we need to be patient and recognize that, that sometimes things do um, do take time. So looking at a long view, sometimes where are we really, really going to be able to go with this and how long is it really going to take us to get there? Um, I see that people have developed more recognition that they need to keep upgrading their skills. Mm -hmm. I came from the world of classroom training many years ago where a good facilitator was a good facilitator and you might learn another little trick or two along the way, but there wasn't a quantum change and how you did your work. But that is not the same when we start talking about digital technologies. When I started mm. with e-learning, I had Dreamweaver and MS Paint, <laughs> MS Paint, <laughs> right? And, and we learned to do very basic, simple things. We were creating web pages, and then we were creating slides with next buttons. And now people in this business are being called upon to create video, to create dashboards, to create apps to um, you know, to understand artificial intelligence, to understand virtual and augmented reality. And, and you know, I think people have learned that they can't just sit on their laurels and do what they did 10 years ago because we, we're past that. So I think there's more awareness of the need to upskill and to stay current and to find things you like and are interested in and pursue developing um, your, your ability with that. I also, the last thing I would say about kind of themes from talking with the people I talk with is everyone spoke to, I think everyone spoke to a more personalized future where we are gonna see learning that's more tailored to an individual that we're going to see fewer launching courses out for an entire workforce where we're going to see um, data and artificial intelligence and other, uh, other techniques uh, or approaches used to help get more personalized and adaptive learning out to our audiences. One of the things that came across to me is almost all of them seem to say the tools are getting better. And in a way, this seems an obvious thing. We kind of expect technology to get better and Moore's law and all the rest of it. Um, but actually it, it's something that you don't necessarily factor in is, okay, we're working with what we've got at the moment. These tools are gonna get even better and more powerful. Mm -hmm. 
But that also means that I have, as the user of that technology, I have to up my skills and I have to keep up to date with it. And uh, what I'm sort of hearing from you is that that increase all the time in um, capability of the tools that we have available is in itself a problem. Uh, I would not disagree. I think that sometimes tools, and I understand why the vendors are trying to be all things to all people. You know, they try to respond to, to every request for everything. And I, I, an example of that is this demand for quote unquote VR in authoring tools. Well, first of all, there are authoring tools that only do be, there are tools for that that aren't necessarily going to get built into um, sort of one of the mass popular products. Very often people say they want that, but what they really mean is they want 360 video, which is not the same as VR, but that's mm-hmm. what they're calling it. That's what it gets called. But I think, you know, in, in the past, I didn't do it with this most recent report, but in our last authoring tools report in 2019, uh, several of the vendors say people are constantly asking for things. They build, they build them into the product. And then when they go back and run their analytics, nobody's using it. They say they want everything but they're not really using very many of the, the tools they want. Um, and it, it does make it difficult when, you, when you've got one thing that does everything and it costs X dollars to get all those things. And then you only use a 10th of the functionality, but you can't get it anywhere else for a 10th of the price. Right. Is that what you, is that what you were getting at? Not so much that, so, but, okay. but that it, 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 it's kind of this thing of the kind of widening, um, amount of skills that are needed mm. for, to perform the role, especially in learning design. Yes. Uh, and how's the tools get more sophisticated? They stretch you and they stretch your knowledge. Well, so you're you're assuming people are going to use those features. Yeah. <laughs> those features. <laughs> yeah. And I am questioning, I'm questioning that. I'll say this, we did, um, when I did the, uh, sal- the salary survey a couple of years ago, ra- rather than just do market data stuff, which you, it's, yeah. it's much more Googleable now than it used to be. I took a look at a bunch of job descriptions. There are other people that do this. I did a kind of a quick in the moment, what's available right now and within three or four weeks time about job postings and announcements. And, and what I came up with was, you know, we have gone from, you need to be able to do an analysis. You need to be able to manage a project. You need to be able to design basic instruction. You need to be able to meet objectives. All of a sudden it started adding on the things I made listed before they wanted all of those things plus also video design also narration also vr also building apps also and and i think at some point we have got to say enough we've got to define what that instructional design role is and then decide maybe on some specialties maybe a multimedia specialist Hmm. maybe um a web apps but you know i i I don't know but i think at some point you it's not realistic to think you can hire one person who can do all of those things and i don't think that's really what they want to my point about the tools having every feature i saw job postings for for jobs i knew about or companies i knew about their people aren't they aren't doing all that stuff i mean it's just like hr listed eight million things they're going to use four of them Mm. Um, and, and, you know, the flip side of that is you go into a job thing, you know, let's say that, say I am a multimedia specialist, they hire me based on that. And then I'm not doing multimedia at all. I'm sitting in a room with a, you know, some basic authoring tool, building safety awareness courses all the time. I, I, I don't know that, that, that the hiring people always know what they want. It looks mm. like sometimes they just copy over the posting from the last time the job was open. Mm. 
It looks like sometimes they go looking around just to see what other people are posting. And sometimes they didn't make any sense. Sometimes people would say things like must have expertise in storyline or PowerPoint. Yeah. That makes no sense. <laughs> that makes no sense in hiring. So I, um, I think ultimately my advice, now that you asked for it, my advice to someone in the job market now for an instructional design job, I would choose the things I'm going to specialize in and look, look for the people that want that. I just don't think you can be all things to all people. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the people I know who are trying that aren't very good at a lot of that stuff. They're good at what they do, but they're not necessarily good at the other 10 things. I've been meaning to ask you on the podcast for a while. The thing yeah. that prompted me this time to get my act together and finally reach out was mm. seeing your talk at the Learning Leaders Online Forum mm. back in July. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, some research, research you presented there on the educational attainment of Guild members caught my eye. Right. Uh, if I got this right, it showed that half of Guild members have masters and 35% have bachelor degrees and a smaller percentage have PhDs. And I was really struck by that. It seemed like a very educated workforce or a very educated bunch in the, in the guild. How representative would you say that is of the wider L&D profession? Based on that job position re uh, the, uh, announcement review that I did a couple of years ago, I would say almost all of them required a college degree. And I discussed this in the report that having a degree, you, you may be able to do the job without a degree, but you may not be able to get the job without, without a degree. So mm -hmm. I would think, especially here in the United States, most people in that kind of job in an instructional design trainer job, unless it's highly technical, like prison guard training, I would guess most of those people have an undergraduate degree, but I think that's true of a lot of our white collar jobs. That was much more prevalent, by the way, in the in the announcements for the United States than it was for the UK. They right. did not mention degrees most of the time. Um, I would say in consideration of the work most of these people will be doing, assuming we're talking about an instructional designer, et cetera, writing skills are really critical. Perhaps mm. you can get that without a, an undergraduate degree. I don't think it hurts uh, to be able to write. I think project management skills are critical. Um, college presumably helps you learn to do a little bit more of that. So I don't know whether it's that the degree itself is, is so important or so um, such a given as the skills you're going to need to do this job may be better attained through a, a, the college experience. But I also want to say we had several people and I was, the report was about degrees. You know, what are they, how to choose one, why you should pursue one, why not? Um, several of the people I chatted with didn't have a degree at all. And we talked a good deal about how they circumvented it because to be honest with you, that degree business is very often just a filter. If they no. get 200 job applications for instructional designer, it is a really easy pile to sort. No degree, no degree, no degree. It's not fair, hmm. but that that is the reality. And especially now when we've got AI screening, uh, electronic, you know, resumes and, and applications, it, they program stuff to get kicked out to choose your hmm. hiring pool. But some of them did talk about the ways they they got a foot in the door, and often it was through networking you know, being active in the community, like local chapters or meetings they could go to. It was volunteering for projects that involve some kind of training. 
um, if they were interested in that role. And it was honestly, it was sometimes luck, luck of knowing somebody who could help you get um, get past the requirements, um, which sometimes do feel a little bit arbitrary. We had one person, I'm trying to, I can't think who it was, who said they had been a temp working in a, in a computer call center or a customer call center. And they were so good at helping their coworkers with the software that, that they got promoted out hmm. into training and they became a trainer and from there a designer. So, you know, I would, I would say yes, for those kind of jobs in the United States, a degree is, is kind of a given. I don't know that it reflects unusual levels of education. Um, the, I don't know what to say about the master's degrees. I don't know, um, compared to the rest of the population. I will say that master's programs in ID are very, very popular here. There is so much in that um, research of yours that, that's interesting. One point that came out to me was thinking about, uh, I only got a bachelor's degree. Mm. Um, We've been doing this uh, series on learning theory with um, Donald Clark, Great Minds on Learning, mm. this mm. podcast that we're, we're launching mm. this season. Um, and, of course, you come up against the, the thing. A lot of this is kind of uh, to do with scholarly communication. You know, people publish papers. You mm. have to go back to the papers, and then other people read the papers and build on the papers and cite the papers. There's this whole mechanism for how that works within academia. You don't necessarily touch that at BA level not really to get to master's level, do you really kind of get aware of what the norms of, of scholarly communication right. are, I, I'd say. I, there, there is this issue that um, Donald says that, that nobody in, in the profession knows anything about the learning theory or, you know, they, they, they don't have very high name recognition for people like Miller, Sweller and, and, and so on, Ebbinghaus. Um, so... How does that impact? Because there, there seems to be a disconnect there. You've got a lot of people with masters, a lot of people who know about that there is a scientific literature that you can access, and yet kind of low levels of awareness and application of, of that theory. Uh, first of all, I will say it, it was true with many of the, the people I spoke with, and it emerged in the data that a lot of people do work a while before they go back for that next level degree. In fact, okay. most people recommend you don't just stay in school. You don't stay in when you're 22 and just go get a master's uh, that you should work in the field for a while that you should find out for one thing, whether you even like it. Um, but most of them said that the data we have is that a master's degree is worth about $3,000 more a year, a doctorate, another three. I don't know whether that's true on your side of the world, but it, it seems to bear out here. But they, they also were going in because they wanted to learn more about theory. They wanted to, they, they admitted, they said, we didn't really know what we were doing. We seemed to be good at it, but we didn't know why. <laughs> um, I would argue that, that you're giving me something very anecdotal that Donald Clark feels like people don't have name recognition because they don't sit around talking about Ebbinghaus, but I hear people using the right theories, talking about the right theories. I also want to remind everyone <laughs> that we're talking about people who have real jobs in the real world. And sometimes you don't get fired. You just, you do what they want. You fight as well as you can. I was good at it. Not everyone is. 
Um, but I would push back a little that people don't don't have the name recognition just because they're not sitting around, you know, um, discussing Kolb's cycle of learning endlessly, even though they might be using it. Um, but that's what they said they went. But now I also want to say for the master's degree, which is, I would argue, is not quite an eggheaded thing. I would say you are exposed to academic literature, but that's not where you spend most of your time. Um, I would I would say that you want to find a program or most people found programs that had a balance of the academic, but also practical. You need a program that gives you internships or gives you real clients to work with mm. or gives you a real project to work on. One of my interviewees said, if, if all you do is leave a graduate program only, only able to talk about Addy or the Kirkpatrick taxonomy, you, taxonomy, you have not been well served. You know, you need to have some practical application. The challenge with that in graduate schools is that you also want it to be current. And you know, as well as I do, that things blow like the wind. You know, gamification was huge five years ago, and now I don't hear much about it at all, right? Microlearning is on fire right now, but I bet in five years, we're not talking about that anymore. So trying to keep, you know, find a program that gives you a good balance of practical versus theoretical and also current without it just being you know, blowing in the wind ideas is, is a challenge, but I, I push back a little that people are not getting that name recognition. There was also some interesting stuff in your research about dealing with the pandemic. Uh, mm. We've been asking people for a while mm. now on this podcast, the question, how we cope now that we're coming out of the pandemic? In fact, we've been asking that question for about a year. But the tale of it has ended up being so long that the question now feels almost perilous to ask. So instead, yeah. can I ask um, you, where do you feel L&D is right now with it, with COVID and the challenge that it presents? And what further challenges and opportunities do you see ahead as this long tail stretches on us? I'm a little worried in the United States right now, we seem to be in this weird catch between, oh my gosh, there's Delta and other variants and we're going back to masking and, and vaccination rates need to improve. And also everybody come back to work. I don't really know, <laughs> I don't really know how they're working that out. I would say, yes, we seem to be in a very, very long tail. We all kept thinking we were coming out and then now it feels like here we go again. The research that we did, I would say holds up pretty well, even though uh, because what we found was the things that changed will probably remain that way. People uh, liked the shift to virtual. Now they accept the shift to virtual and other kinds of instruction, and they don't intend to go back to traditional face-to-face. -face. They don't intend to bring fly people to Connecticut to learn to be a, an insurance actuary if they're going to be working in Los Angeles. Um, so I... I think despite the long tail that, that what we are seeing is what we were expecting anyway. People will continue to remain virtual. Training will continue to remain largely not, not in a face-to-face -face format. Um, several of uh, the people we talked with when we were looking at researching, you know, where were you on your technology roadmap? Did COVID hold you up? Did COVID help you accelerate? A number of people said they felt that it had given them a chance to catch up. They didn't feel like they were so far behind their peers anymore. So it sort of gave them a chance to catch up while those peers were holding back on things like virtual reality and more custom video. And some of this, they, they were kind of shifting back into the old stuff. I do think um, what we're seeing now, COVID notwithstanding, and just what we were seeing as a natural um, course of events, 
early in the pandemic, everybody was rushing to do what I think of as emergency remote teaching. You know, it says, oh my gosh, we got to do something. We got to get people trained. We got to put it online. And we slammed it online as fast as we could. And we admitted then it wasn't a very good job. The more conscientious companies, and I think the more, the more people I know in the business who were aware that that's what we were doing are working now to take, they, they have the time now to rethink that, to redesign things, to say, all right, this is not just an emergency fix. We're going to have to, you know, we have to think about this for the long haul. And they're doing a pretty good job with that. <clears throat> so I do think um, we, we just got caught in an unusual situation where what we did is working and we'll probably continue it. And probably we would have regardless um, of the pandemic. I don't know when people are going to feel comfortable sitting in a small classroom with 30 people again, whatever the health situation is. So, It'll seem like I'm hopping around a bit, but I, I, no. I'd like to come back to that thing of the L&D skill set. Um, okay. And the way that it's the way that it's widening, what sort of pressures does that put on people beginning in the profession? So in one sense, I could look at it and think, well, you know, in in my kind of area, my discipline, marketing, um, I could see that marketing departments got a bit more uh, diversified. You know, you had these kind of data specialists because data has driven marketing for quite a long time with direct marketing, but that kind of accelerated with digital. And now you have specialists who are specialists in nothing else but buying Google AdWords, um, <laughs> so, <and you'd, laughs> which is incredibly specialized. Um, and, it, it, you know, it, it, this person in another life would have gone into an accounting career because it's, it's incredibly numbers-based. Do you see anything like that happening within the L&D department? I mean, you know, are there signs of it happening? Do you imagine it might happen? But the, the more general point, really, Will there be more specializations that emerge within the L&D I hope so, because I do think we've got people stretched too thin, trying to do too many things and maybe not being good at half of them. I think a lot of the answer to that depends on the size of the organization. As long as we have little organizations with single person or three person training departments, those people are always going to be asked to wear multiple hats. When I did the, the uh, salary survey a couple of years ago about what, what people were doing in their jobs, there were people who said, in, in addition to being the instructional designer, the multimedia expert, and the LMS administrator, they also were in charge of Employee Appreciation Day, and one of them was helping with the company books. Yeah! <laughs> so I don't think that's a new problem. I don't know if it's going to get better. I worked for managers who, it was sort of flavor of the day, what do you know about AR? Let's do AR. What do you know about micro learning? Let's do micro, you know, responding to everyone. We need an app, <laughs> everything. So I, I do hope that eventually that will, that will get a little better defined, that we won't have people wearing so many different hats. But I do think in little organizations, we're probably always going to see some, some of that. And we're also going to see people who are not trainers repurposed as this learning person that happens all the time that somebody who in the HR office is pretty good with the internet hmm. suddenly is designing, <laughs> designing the online courses. Right. Um, I would hope when we start talking about bigger organizations, that at least they start to recognize 
that the LMS person needs to be an LMS person and that the instructional design person needs to do that. I wish companies, and I'm, I've got a very broad brush here, so I apologize for that, would be more open to outsourcing specific things they need. Yeah. Rarely than to try to have a person learn to do it overnight. Um, one thing that was interesting, we did an ARVR survey a few years back, and it turned out that that people did understand they needed to outsource that. They were understanding it was too complex to try to create their own VR in-house, and they were willing to work with a vendor. We saw that on the authoring tools report as well. So I'm hoping maybe they recognize that a little bit more about some of these other specific things that they want, that in the long run, it's easier to just outsource it and get, get it done than to try to repurpose your own staff, to try to hire somebody you don't really need full time. Um, and that kind of thing. I had another thought, but I've lost it. So I'm hoping, yes, there will be more specialization uh, mm. and recognition that, that some skills are, are more challenging than others. Um, whether, but, but here's the thing. I talked with Bob Mosher about this. So I know you talked with him recently too. Mm. I talked with Bob and Khan. As long as we hire and pay people who are called instructional designers, that is what they're going to do. Mm right? One way, one way or another, they're going to make courses. They're not necessarily going to do experiences. They're not necessarily going to do um, documentation for the web. They're not necessarily going to do these other things. But if you call them instructional designers and you go to them and say, I need a class, that's kind of what they're always going to be, I think, pigeonholed into. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's um, kind of ringing a bell with me. I remember talking to Helen Dean of a very large company um, was saying he, he he looked at the people sitting there doing time management courses. And think, you know, I'm going to stop. Said to himself, I'm going to stop hiring instructional designers because we're just building and building and mm -hmm. reinventing the wheel. So, with smaller companies, my kind of marketing experience has been with a smaller company. You've still got a marketing budget, but you have to outsource a lot of stuff, and it very much becomes a buying function. Mm -hmm. I think L and D, in that it's kind of a cost center. Um, it is a buying function. And I used to say to the salespeople, you know, they'd say sales and marketing is exactly the same thing. I said, no, you're a, you're a sales. I'm in buying. I buy stuff, right. you know, right. whether I do my job or well or badly is down to how well I buy. Um, and I think, it, it, you know, perhaps that L&D really needs to kind of um, get better buying skills, perhaps. I, I would agree with that. One other thing that came up, um, again, this was with the ARVR report, which is several years old now. What was happening was that people that were using particularly virtual reality for training were not going to the, the training department for that. Yeah. They did not see that as something that the training department needed to help with or be involved with or had the capability for. They were like like sections of the organization divisions like R&D or product development, product launch were outsourcing that work, but they weren't going through the training department to get it. And I think we need to be careful about where we're relevant and where we're not and where we want to be involved or not. And we're talking about, for instance, um, I think it was either Caterpillar or John Deere, one of the big equipment construction equipment companies had developed a virtual reality where the, the, the repair tech could walk through a new machine. They could walk through the engine. They could see the part. They could be a component of this thing. And um, 
they recognized that their training department was never going to be up, <laughs> up for that. And it's fine. I mean, I do think back to your question, is that the training department's problem? If, mm-hmm. if R&D wants a specific, something specific like that, whose job is it to do? And doesn't it make more sense to bring in, bring in the crew that can really get it done? So, mm-hmm. you know, the fact though, that, that other departments were defining what what training could and couldn't do and ought to be involved in. I think I'd pay attention to that if I was a training department in a big company. Um, that doesn't mean the training department has to step up and do it if they can't, but it would be, uh, you know, they complain about not having a seat at the table and there's a table that they are not at all at in that, in that instance. So paying attention to what's um, what's going on with that. But I, I work for government. It is, it's infuriating, but honestly, it's easier to hire a person full time and keep repurposing them than to get a contract for $50,000 to outsource this thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be a battle um, and, and it doesn't make any sense to me economically, because then you have this person that you're constantly trying to retrofit to some other problem, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you really just needed them. I remember the one of the last battles I had before I left there, I was able to I worked there a long time. I was able to retire was wrangling over $25,000 for a developer to do animations I couldn't do, hmm. you know, for, and I had a, I had a user base of 85,000 people. When we did a course, we did it. We did a course. I mean, it was a big audience. It was going to have a lot of uses, a lot of reuses. Um, and it, it was just crazy that they wanted to retrain the guy down the hall seven months to do animation that it wasn't going to be good. I mean, it was just kind of maddening the way that they chose to allocate resources, I guess, to staff rather than to a simple outsourcing to a local company that we'd worked with before. It was just ridiculous, but um, such is, such is the nature of the business, but. While we're on the subject of um, L and D skills, um, can we personalize this a bit? I mean, this is always an interesting question for me because the answers that come back are so diverse. How did you get into the learning industry yourself? Um, can you reflect on your journey in learning kind of from the early days and as you moved through your career? I can. It was almost all serendipitous. Yeah. It was almost all accidental. I was in a, in a role that involved some training of workers. Uh, I ended up, I was pretty good at that. I was recognized for being pretty good at that. And um, a, a job came up at a local, uh, in, in a staff development department of a local government uh, hospital. They were looking for a literacy trainer, which I had a degree in English and, and was willing to learn to be a literacy trainer. They had a situation where the healthcare staff, the direct care staff, a good many of them in the olden times had uh, come in with minimal education, not with great um educational credentials, maybe not strong literacy skills. And suddenly the state had decided they needed to pass written exams, which was ridiculous. They'd been doing jobs for 20 years. And suddenly the state wants to have these credentials. So they brought me in to be a literacy instructor for these people. And I never did that. Um, the, The week I came in, the person who did the leadership training stuff quit. And all of a sudden I was the leadership training person. Ask Don Clark about leadership and see where, <laughs> see what he says. Go ahead. Tell him I said to ask about leadership training. But I, 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 that was not really my thing. I questioned how effective it was, but it also taught me to be really um, a good platform trainer. It, it, there, we didn't have instructional designers, and 
you know, how to design a class that was interesting and useful to the people I'm talking about who maybe were first level supervisors who did not have a lot of academic background, who were not interested in talking about the Yohari window <laughs> right, and stuff like that. So it, it gave me a good skill set about being a trainer, being a good trainer, making dull content interesting and dealing with compliance topics. So it really prepared me for more work mm. with, with government, right? Um, and I just sort of outgrew that job. I had done it. I didn't really want to be a manager. I didn't want to become like a department head. And so uh, the Department of Justice in North Carolina was looking for a training director, but it was sort of a one-person shop, and there had not been a training department there before. The new manager was there, and he wanted a training um, program, which really was right up my alley, and I had a really good time with that job. So I was, I developed skill at going in and creating a program where there really hadn't been one. That was really good for me. It was a good experience for me. He asked me at a performance review, he said, we don't have money for raises, but we have money for academic assistance. Would you like to get your master's degree? And I said, yes, I would. <laughs> so um, at the time, a lot of that was still live. Some of it was online, but some of it was live. And I was literally within three miles of the college because I was working in downtown Raleigh. It was a state school. So that was fairly easy to pursue. And um, about half, maybe not even half the classes then were online. And that was what was nothing but scrolling web pages with some pictures. It was, it was, it was terrible, but here was the thing. I was in a situation in this job with the state, with this justice department. We had people drive to Raleigh from the mountains, which is three or four hours, spend the night in hotels to listen to an EEO officer read policy to them in orientation. It was a ridiculous use of everyone's time. It was a ridiculous use of state money. Again, the sunk money that we could have used that money for some, so many better things than paying for hotels for people to come to orientation. So um, I saw online learning as a way to solve a lot of that problem. I'm like, there's really, if we're just reading, there's no need to make them come here. Can we put this online? Can we have them sign off something in the HR office? And so even though it was bad, it was still in my view better than what we were doing. And so I got very interested in online learning which really then was Dreamweaver and Authorware. It was, there was not much else. And so I switched my concentration to technology-based training and that sort of defined the rest of my, the, la the last 20 years of my career. Um, I finished that degree just about the time the state was having conversations about how we should do some of this e-learning stuff. So, you know, I just, it was really serendipitous that I was finishing that degree and had done projects for state government and for my job, just as the time they were opening up a role for somebody to do that. So I stepped right over into that job and I stayed there 16 years. Uh, wrote a lot of stuff along the way. Um, back in the day when getting published was a big deal. <laughs> that magazine, you got a magazine article published. And I presented the first conference I presented at was about my master's thesis. It was about. Um, the fact that I was trying to do e-learning and I had no money and I was with government and how did I do it with everyone around me saying we can't do e-learning because it costs too much. So I did my master's thesis on, you know, how to create inexpensive e-learning programs. I presented that at a training magazine conference and there was a publisher in the audience who asked me if I would repurpose it as a book. And that was my first book and things, things took off in that regard then. And can you take us from there to the present day? 
Well, I worked on, um, I, I was the state's the states uh, of North Carolina's e-learning coordinator. I was housed in the central office. And so I oversaw the creation of the launching of the whole programmatic approach um, that we were taking to, to deploying e-learning courses to our state government workers. There were 85,000 of them. So it was a pretty big job. It was a pretty big um, public visible kind of, kind of work. Um, and I just, you know, I started writing a lot. I started publishing more. I, I started speaking at a lot of conferences. Management liked that I was doing that. They liked that we were getting recognized for the work that we were doing when, when even, you know, pub, public and even big industries were not doing as well with e-learning as this little state of North Carolina mm. was doing. And we were outshining nearly all the other state governments. And so they really liked it. So I spoke at a lot of events and, you know, that begets more. And uh, people would ask me to write. People would ask me to speak. Uh, I was appearing in a, in a lot of national and international events. Um, but I did that job for a, a long time. I was pretty happy there. And I found that, you know, a lot of my day-to-day experience translated pretty well to, to writing and blogging and, and publishing pieces about it. I tend to try, I try to be pragmatic. I try to be useful and not be thought leadering. Yeah. <laughs> like this really happened and this really collapsed and this really went wrong. And this was what we did when we seriously didn't have any money. So I try to, I try to stay with that. And I think it got me a good reputation. So uh, with the state of North Carolina, you can retire and get full benefits and health insurance, which is a big deal here um, mm. with a certain number of years. And I attained that. So I let it be known about a year before that I was interested in, you know, I'm too young. I'm, I'm really young to be retired. So I let it be known that I would be interested in some part-time remote work with the big training media companies. And the, uh, the guild called me up and they had this wonderful job. Janet Clary had been in this job. Patty Shank had been in this job. Um, everybody had done it and kind of gone on to other things. And so they said it was opening up again and, and asked if I was interested and it was great. So that's, that's been four years now, three and a half years. And how can people follow your work and thought? What's the best place um, you know, to go? Obviously, the Guild site. Right. My current my current stuff is really just about um, the research reports on the Guild. We just I wrote a uh, column for the Guild for ten years called Nuts and Bolts, which is sort of the things I've been talking about, just the basics of ID, practical advice for somebody in the job. We recently um, curated those into sort of a compendium of advice for people in instructional design. It's not meant to be an exhaustive a resource, but it's a free ebook that's available on that site. I'm working on one now, but um, I'm also on Twitter all the time. I help run Learn Chat on Thursdays, which unfortunately is in the middle of the night for England, but um, <laughs> you can always check in with us the next, the next day. But I'm easiest to find, easiest to reach on Twitter. I'm almost always on and available and happy to chat there. And mostly what I do, if I'm doing something, I tweet it there or I retweet it there or I post a link there. So that's where I'd look for me. Thank you very much. All right. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. Please like, rate, review and follow on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Bye for now. When I first started up the podcast back in 2019, um, I spent a lot of time going around asking people, who do you think I should have on, who, who mm. we could guess? Um, and they, 
I, I got a lot of replies along the lines of, well, you know, there's a lot of flannel merchants and snake oil in this industry. Um, forget about those people. Here's a list yeah. of the serious people that you ought to have on your podcast. Yeah. And, and it was people like Bob Mosher and um, Laura Overton and so on. And your name came up very often. And along with people like Jane Hart and so on. So it's a real honour to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank I, you. I wish we could do more, but thank you very much for coming on today. Sure. For taking I, the just, time. I, I, I would like to add one of my pet peeves are people in this business who've never actually had a job. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't realize that eventually they tip their hand. And it's just re- really, you know, I get, I, I appreciate that people recognize when somebody has actual expertise and real expertise, because there's an awful, you're right, there's an awful lot of snake oil. So thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. I hope I didn't go on and on too much. You can always cut me if you need to. Just edit it out. Uh, I'll edit it in. It's all, it's all gold. That's right. That's right. It's worth everything you paid me, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. It's always a delight to get to talk to somebody new and have some, you know, interesting conversations.